uh, slavery and bondage in Egypt. Uh, they're working their way towards the promised land, which isn't that long of a journey. Uh, technically, it shouldn't take them but a couple of weeks to get there. But the reality is, uh, because of sin and things that will follow on into future chapters, it's actually going to take them 40 years. Uh, so God is preparing them for that journey. And he did that at the beginning of this book in these first couple of chapters uh, by setting out uh, the men who were ready for military service. And so he takes these men who are ready for military service and he does a census of them and then he tells them how they're supposed to line up and how it is that they're supposed to march, what order they're supposed to be marching in. And what we see is about 600,000 plus uh, young men ready for battle, ready to uh, serve in the military for their nation. And this is important because as they're marching towards this new promised land, they're also bringing with them all of their family. And so they're here to protect their, their family, their friends, uh, their relatives. They're all going to the same place together. And so you need a military force to do that. Uh, you also need a lot of organization. And so you're going to find a lot of what we're going to be seeing is organizational things, things that are going to be done from a management perspective to make this journey go a little bit easier. And so we'll see that tonight uh, first as we look uh, at this first section there, uh, looking at the idea of uh, what to do about those who are um, uh, sick and how to handle sickness within the camp. Certainly you don't want sickness running rampant. Uh, how to handle broken uh, relationships because of sin, first by the law of restitution and then this law uh, that is the very confusing one that we'll spend a big chunk of time on because it's the most verses. Uh, this law of jealousy that we're going to see at the end of chapter 5. Uh, and then there'll be a section uh, that's going to focus in on those who want to take a special oath of separation to God and how they can handle that, the Nazarite oath. Uh, and then at the end of that, we'll see uh, the blessing that God gives Aaron to pray over the people as they continue on in this journey. So I uh, just want to keep that in context because it's easy to kind of look at these and say these are just really weird rules. But when you remember that you have potentially millions of people marching through the wilderness trying to get somewhere uh, these rules are going to be, hopefully for them, uh, in many ways, lifesavers. These are going to be rules that are going to prevent future problems. So they're setting them all out uh, in place here. So uh, we'll start out in verse 1 of chapter 5 because it seems like a fine place to start. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp while I dwell, where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, thus the sons of Israel did. Which I always love, uh, just as the Lord had spoken, the sons of Israel did. That's what you want to hear. The Lord said it. The people did it. But here's the uh, situation. We're going to be introduced to a word here in the, the book of Numbers that's new, uh, not new to us. We know the word, but new to this book. It's the word defile or defilement. Uh, you're going to see this word uh, come up 10 times in chapter 5 and 6 and only three other times the rest of the book. So this whole section here uh, is dealing with this idea of defilement and then separating out those that are defiling those things and those people that cause uh, things to, to be defiled. Uh, but a better way of thinking it would be to be infectiously in a bad way, right? And so there's the infection that we're going to find with disease. 
the infection of sin, the infection of jealousy. You're going to see these types of things that you have to watch out for or else they're going to wreak havoc havoc within your camp, within your group that you're trying to protect here. So uh, the first thing they have to do is they have to remove those who have potentially infectious diseases. And I say potentially infectious because it's not like they have a large group of doctors that have the wisdom that our doctors have today. They kind of have to look at things in a more, uh, I would say, uh, a simpler way. I mean, if it's, if it's got drainage, it's probably not good. That's the simplest way to look at it, right? Uh, that there's probably some sort of potential that that could spread uh, to other people. And so uh, I would call this, if you want to put it in contemporary terms, this is the, the COVID rules right here, right? Those that you know have the problem. Those you have to separate out from the healthy so that the healthy don't get sick. And so we would call that quarantine today. Uh, Now, they handled it a little bit different. Uh, If I were to put this into a modern perspective, it would be like saying, hey, if somebody in your family has some sort of infectious disease in order to prevent others, we're going to actually ask them to move outside of town. Now, I live outside of town all the time, so maybe I am an infectious disease. I don't know. But this idea of separating out, and what that does is, again, it protects those who are healthy. And this is important. Remember what God told the people of the nation of Israel? If you follow my laws, you will live long in the land. One of the ways God did that was just simple biology, microbiology, viral biology. God knowing how disease spreads, he finds ways to prevent it from spreading uh, throughout specifically his army but ultimately his people at this point. And so there is this separation. It describes the people that they send away from the camp, uh, lepers, anyone with a discharge, uh, anyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Uh, Because again, how did that person die? You don't know. And so it's possible whatever disease they had that killed them would then infect you. Uh, There's also a picture here though as well uh, that's going to be related to the idea of holiness. These two things are connected that The idea of sin is often related to the idea of disease, not because all disease is caused by individual sins, but because the picture of disease is very similar in the way that it spreads and it causes death. The sin in our own lives does the same thing. So he's trying to set aside these people and protect them and give them this life. Now, uh, lest you start to feel bad for these people who are sent outside the camp, understand, first of all, for some of them, I, I think they would say, no, this is, this is a grace. I don't want to get my family, my relatives sick. I don't want to. I want to keep them healthy. The other side of this is don't think of it as we're sending them outside of the camp and we're just going to leave them out in the woods until they die. That's not what's going on here. There's ways for them to be restored back to the camp when health comes. Uh, and they're not like separated out like, um, again, they're marching towards the promised land. It's not like when the rest of the group leaves, these who have been kicked out just have to stay and just wave them goodbye. No, they're going to be actually following along. And we'll see later in the book how that works out and how God's provided protection for them and things. But the idea here is that there's just this prevention of the spread of disease. This is just a very wise and simple uh, health idea that they have here. So that's what he's doing in this. He's dividing them out. Again, it doesn't matter in verse 3 whether it's male or female. It doesn't matter who they are. 
uh, if they have these types of things going on, uh, if they've been defiled in this way because of disease, likely, uh, they would have to stay outside the camp until they could be restored back into the camp. Now, it doesn't talk about it much here, but there's even some uh, ritual things that they would do at the end to be restored back into the camp. And it's kind of just a way of showing that they actually are healthy again. And so this is just how it's all playing out here. The sons of Israel, again, doing the things that God asked them to do, which is good because you don't always read that in the rest of the scripture. You don't always see them doing the things that God asked them to do, uh, but a very simple thing designed to keep people healthy. Uh, Now, you can apply that to contemporary things however you want, uh, but I would say at the very least, there should be some wisdom uh, in just recognizing keeping sick away from those who are not sick. What I want you to see also, though, is something powerful that I think Jesus does. Now, when he comes later on, and of course we saw an example of this last Sunday, what did Jesus do? He restored the sick. Now, there's a number of reasons he did that. One reason, we're told, was just simple compassion. He would just see a sick person and he would have compassion on them. Another reason we're told that Jesus did this is because it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so the Old Testament said that he would come and he would heal those who are blind and all these things. So that's one of the things that Jesus did. It's pointing him to those Old Testament prophecies. But I think there's also just a symbolic nature that Jesus came to cleanse us of our sin. And he illustrates that in the power of cleansing people from their disease. And so you see how all of that kind of lays out together. There's some value in the way that God does these things. So we continue on to the next issue. We move from defilement Uh, of a health issue to a new kind of defilement, and that is the defilement of sin. Verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, And give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it is his. So uh, the next thing you have to worry about is sin. If you have a group of 600,000 soldiers plus all of their families all together, camping together, and people begin to sin against one another... That also can destroy the plans and the purposes of the community. It can also bring destruction to the people. When you have sin in your camp, when you have sin amongst the people. And so there's this process now to make good on the sin through what's called restitution. So to put it in simple terms, if I stole $100 from you, I would pay restitution. I would restore your $100 plus one-fifth or another $20. And what that's designed to do, number one, is give restoration to the person who sinned. This is his way of getting back into the good graces of the community. But the other thing is to soften the blow of the sin to the offended party. They didn't just lose one thing and have it restored. They lost it. It was restored, but it was restored beyond what they originally had. 
There's this idea of this restitution that goes beyond to bring uh, restoration, really, I think, to the relationships. Again, when you have people, uh, people are going to do sinful things. When you have a large group of people together, that's going to happen. And when those things are found and when those things are confessed, there's a process to restore the relationship. It's important and I think powerful for that community to be able to restore those relationships. It's not good enough to just say, oh, that person sinned. I guess you're just going to have to get over it. No, you've got to march next to this person for who knows how long. It turns out 40 years, right? You've got to find some way to make that relationship right again. All of this is going to help keep the community unified and together, that there would be some oneness there. Uh, again, for me, the powerful thing is seeing how people respond to these things. Uh, and so it says there in verse 6, when a man or woman commits any of these sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins and make restitution. And so there's a process there. There's first a realization that the sin was against the person, but it was also an, uh, a faithless act against the Lord. I think we have to keep both pieces of that in mind. Sometimes when we sin, we think it only impacts the person we sinned against. But no, it represents unfaithfully the things of our God. Some people would look at sin and they say, well, it only was sinning against God and God alone. No, there's also an impact for the people you sinned against. Both of those have to be dealt with. It's a restoration in relationship with the people you've offended. It's a restoration in relationship with God. And that restoration comes first through the confession of that sin. Second, restitution being made from the confession of that sin. Now, when we talk about interpersonal relationship, that's very important. We need to make restitution. And so when we find ourselves that we've sinned against somebody, that we are attempting not just to confess that we did it, but to try to make it right because we want to restore the relationship. The interesting thing with God is since the time of Jesus, the sacrifice for sin has already been paid for us. So we're already, because of that confession of sin, connected with the death of Jesus Christ, paying the price for sins, that brings us restoration to God. Now, they had a picture of that here in this passage, that sin was going to be made, restitution was being made for the people with that 20% addition. But here, restoration is being made with God when you bring a sacrifice, the ram of atonement, by which atonement is made for them. And so this idea that you would bring a sacrifice to God now, because you have to make it right first with the person, but you also have to make it right with God. Uh, you remember this in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, when you pray and you realize that somebody has something against you, first go and make amends with them, then bring your sacrifice to God. So you make right the relationship with other people, then you make right the relationship with God. There's this idealistic process that God puts in there uh, that you can make these relationships right again. Again, all of this is designed to stop the spread of sin now within the camp. And so the atonement is going to be made through the sacrifice. Even in that, this ram of atonement is a picture of Jesus Christ, that there must be a death to pay the price for the sin because the wage of sin is death. That's the New Testament teaching, but it's played out through the Old Testament law. And so in Jesus Christ, we have now the ram of atonement. He's the one that's going to, uh, this is my play on words. It's not a great definition of atonement, so don't 
write this down as doctrinal, but just the play on words, it, it makes us at one with God again. It restores us in that relationship. And that's ultimately what we're seeing here, the atonement that's going on here. There's this double-pieced restoration with the person you've offended and with God. And then there's a provision in there. Uh, if that person is no longer alive and they have no living relatives to give that to, then that uh, restitution would be paid to the um, priest. And you'll also see uh, that that plays out all throughout, that there's many things that we do uh, that were done in the Old Testament that were brought as sacrifices to God, but a portion of it was left over for the priests as provision for them. Uh, the priests had a little bit of an interesting uh, situation. God gave them no inheritance in the land, and so he provided for them through the sacrifices and gifts of the people. And so that was part of this process. And that's what you see here. If you, if you pay that, uh, let's say, again, we're going to use the fictional number that there was $100 worth of offense, you would have to pay $120 to pay that offense. And that $120, if that person is no longer alive and there's no living relatives, then that $120 goes to the priest. Now, we don't do that today, so you know, I'm, not, I'm not asking for anybody to like pay me back for sins they did to other people. You don't have to do that. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Please don't do that. I have to be careful when I take these things literally sometimes because uh, one time I was talking about how in the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, I mean, gifts to the uh, sanctuary are often given not in money, uh, but in produce and in animals, and then somebody brought me a, a live chicken and left it on the stage for me. So I have to be cautious what I say. Sometimes people take these things that I say, sometimes uh, not intending to be uh, super serious, a little bit joke, joking, but uh, people take them pretty serious. So uh, anyway, uh, next comes the, the, the interesting one. Uh, my Bible, um, I don't know if your Bible does this, but my Bible puts labels over different sections of the Scripture. Um, I don't always like those labels because I think they misrepresent sometimes unintentionally. Mine calls this the adultery test. I think this is actually a bad label because the, the Word of God actually calls this the law of jealousy in verse 29. And so that's how I would label this. This is actually dealing primarily with jealousy in the case of a potential or unknown adultery. So what I want to do, because it is such a weird thing, I want to read it all to you. It's a long section, and then I'll go back and break it down into smaller sections so you can understand what's going on. But if you just read through it, uh, it sounds just a little bit weird, really. I mean, it's just, it's different. Let's just say that. So verse 11, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she's not been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and his jealousy of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and is, he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself... Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near, have her stand before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and he shall 
take some dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Told you, it's a little weird, right? The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making. Your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll and he shall wash them off in the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and afterward he shall make the woman drink the water." When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt. So, whew, it's a long section, but I wanted to read you the whole thing because it, it really is just kind of weird sounding to us, right? Like, we have better science now. We can figure out if something's happening. We can just, you know, check their Facebook profile and see what's going on there, or check their text messages. We don't have all this stuff. This just sounds like hocus pocus, right? This is just weird stuff going on here. But again, I think one of the concerns is sin that's going to move throughout the camp. In this case, there are two sins mentioned here. One that gets the focus, adultery, but the other sin is jealousy in this. There's this struggle between this jealousy and this potential adultery. And this is a key point that we have to look at here. Uh, this is saying that there is no evidence and there's been no witness to any adultery. Now, it's possible she had an affair and just it was never known. It hasn't been found out. But there's no evidence that she's guilty of anything. If there was evidence, there's very clear things in other portions of law that they would do in response to this. But this is a situation, there's no evidence. All there is, is a jealous husband's mind. Well, jealousy, we're told in the book of Proverbs, enrages people. 
Again, if you're trying to maintain a group of potentially millions of people marching through the wilderness for 40 years, you can't have a lot of jealousy and fighting and all of this stuff going on. You really don't want to have that even when you're not marching, right? So there needs to be at least some way to deal with this. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, I'm trusting, came up with a good system. Now, here's what I want to say about this. Husbands or wives, jealousy without evidence is bad every single time. It's just not wise. I was thinking about this because uh, sometimes I would say, you know, jealousy represents the reality of your love for somebody. That's actually, I think, part of it. Like God is jealous for his people because he loves his people. There, there's a real sense of jealousy there. But that jealousy is not built on fake news. It's got to be based on reality. And sometimes we can get in our heads about things. And I know as a husband who, who loves his wife quite a bit, if you didn't know that, <laughs> I've found these moments where I have just these strange moments of jealousy. And I don't know if it's, if it's Satan putting this into my mind or whatever, uh, or, or I don't know what the deal is, but every once I just get in these moments of jealousy, like, oh, I wonder what's going on. Where's she at today? What's she doing today? Why hasn't she answered my text message? It's been eight minutes. <laughs> Why do we have all this technology? <laughs> and just these moments, what I always have to go back to is I love her because she's trustworthy. And so I'm just going to trust her even when my mind is caught up in jealousy. So there's a sin here of jealousy. And I think that's part of the reason when the man goes to the priest, he has to bring an offering. It's called the jealousy offering. It's a way to deal with what potentially in this case could be a false accusation. It's kind of like there's been a rumor placed out there. And he's just trying to deal with this, but there's no evidence. There's no witness. There's an old song in the 80s. Some of you probably know this, but I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend that you've been messing around. Like that's, that's just gossip. It's just a rumor just spreading. But it leads to this jealousy, which jealousy then leads to enraged. And when you're enraged, it's difficult to have a good relationship, right? And so there's this path forward when you don't know to try to find out what's going out there. It's intended to, I think, primarily relieve the husband, in this case, of his jealousy. But it's also, you're going to see, going to have some miraculous ability to represent the truth on adultery. So let's look at what they do. So the, the husband, in this case, is going to bring his wife before the priest. Not before his best friend, or her best friend, but before the priest. And this just goes back to, I think, the idea uh, of, of two things. Number one, bring him to a position of authority. Sometimes when you get to that authority figure, if, if there's lies there, those will come out when the authority figure is. And if you have enough respect for that authority, it really does put an extra bit of pressure on you. The other thing that it does, though, I think it actually, in a sense, protects the wife. Because... Now we have, apparently, the priest, one of the most religious people, one of the most godly people, interceding. And I've seen this over and over, that sometimes even our Christian friends don't give the best godly advice when it comes to relationships. And that can cause all kinds of difficulties and problems. 
But bringing it to the priest here, I think, is saying, let's bring this to the person who is a representative of God. It's almost like saying, let's bring this to God. So there's this ceremony where, number one, she has to hold this offering for jealousy in one hand. They then take off her head covering, which the head covering uh, is a representation of authority over her, which essentially now says, I'm putting myself under the authority by removing that head covering, not of my husband now, but under the authority of God. And she's going to have to do two things now. They're going to make the weirdest Kool-Aid. They're going to take this glass of water and take dirt off of the floor of the, the tent of meeting and put it in that water. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that water with dirt in it going to cause anybody's thigh to waste away or swell? No. It's just dirty water, right? In and of itself, let's just remove God from the equation from it. We're going to put him back in. But just in and of itself, it has no ability to cause her any real harm as long as nothing bad had been on the priest's shoes or anything like that, right? I mean, this is things that I did as a kid. Like when I was a kid, we didn't have chocolate milk. I would think it'd be funny. I'd just go get some water and I'd throw a little dirt in it and pretend I had chocolate milk. Dumb kid. It's, it, the, the water itself, it, it's weird, but it really doesn't do any harm. And it has, in, in my understanding at least, my limited understanding of chemistry, no actual ability to cause anybody's thigh to waste away or anybody's belly to swell. I just don't think it has that ability, and it certainly doesn't have the ability to do the third thing, which is to cause somebody to be unable to conceive. So in and of itself, that drunk, that, that thing that they're going to drink, it's not a magic potion. It's just going to be used in this moment to help illustrate. And so... As they do that, then she has to swear before the priest and God that she's not had an affair. And then drink. Now again, if God's not real, essentially what's going to happen is in every one of those scenarios, every woman would be free and clear. Not one of them would be guilty of adultery, and the husband no longer has a reason to be jealous. But I believe in God. So what I believe actually is happening there is God, who created this rule and invented this ceremony, I believe in this circumstance that he would actually do something miraculous to make that bitterness to reveal those who actually had been involved in adultery. Now, it is a little interesting. You never see this used anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't mean it never happened. It just doesn't ever get mentioned as something that actually happened and somebody was found to be guilty. Uh, but I think if you look at this from both sides, from the non-believer side and the believer side, in each case, it solves the problem. On one case, for the unbeliever, they would look at this and say, well, this is weird. And I would say, actually, it just solved the marriage problem. As far as he knows, because there's no evidence, and because she passed the test, there was no adultery, so his jealousy is unnecessary. Marriage problem solved. On the other hand, because I believe in God, I think God actually would take that to reveal when adultery was there and when adultery wasn't there. And if there was no adultery there, the problem solved. And if there was adultery there, 
the problem was revealed and can be dealt with. Again, this is about making peace in the camp. Now, there's another piece of this where he takes this oath that she has to say uh, before God, and he takes this, and he's actually going to wipe, he's going to write down the curse on this piece of paper, and then he's going to wipe that off with some of this dirty water. And it's, it's kind of just an interesting picture to me. I don't know if there's anything really spiritual about this. Just for me, it's an interesting picture. She's taken an oath that says she hasn't committed adultery and that she's going to be cursed if she's lying. And they take this thing that she's going to drink and they take the water of that and they wipe away the curse. It's kind of an interesting, almost cool picture. If she's innocent, the curse is removed. It's wiped away. Now, again, this is what's called the the law of jealousy. Oh, by the way, the the priest is also going to offer a handful of that up to smoke. Uh, Again, all of this is just reminding us that God is involved in this process. But it's a protection for the relationship. I think it's a protection uh, for the wife of being accused and dealt with with no evidence. And I think it's a protection for the husband that he not allow his jealousy to lead him to be enraged. I think this is God working in kind of an interesting and gracious way. And it's basically a a decision is going to be made through this process whether there was defilement or not defilement. And they call this in verse 29, uh, or as it says in verse 28, if the woman has not been defiled herself and is clean, she'll be free and conceive children. There's this freedom that comes at the end of this for the innocent party. And then they call this the law of the jealousy, which to me tells me that it's focused more on the jealousy than it is on the adultery. Because that's what God decided to name the law. It's a law designed to remove jealousy. Kind of interesting. Anyway, so here's the deal then. The wife at this point or the husband, depending on the circumstances, is either free of guilt because of the offering or they're going to bear the guilt because of sin. And that's kind of how it ends. And then we move into the next chapter, which I'll do also fairly quickly. I'll read through the whole chapter here uh, up to verse 21 anyway, and then talk about the law of the Nazarites. So, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long all the days of his separation to the Lord. He shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedication or dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering and make atonement 
for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite and shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old without defect for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb, a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offering and their drink offering. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings." The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It's holy for the priest together with the breast offered by waving and the thigh offered by lifting up and afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation in addition to what else he can afford, according to his vow which he takes, so he shall do according to the law of his separation. So uh, you guys have probably heard of the Nazarite oath. This is it. The word Nazarite just means one who is separated or consecrated or set apart. And so we have this guy who's separating himself from everything else to be dedicated to the Lord. He, he wants to separate himself out for the purpose of serving God. And in this case, he's going to set a time period. I'm going to make myself holy unto the Lord for a year or a week, however long he feels like is the amount of time that he can do. But it, and sometimes that might be just because he has something major going on. Uh, sometimes it's just a way of act of worship before God, but setting himself aside for God specifically to be holy in God's eye, he's going to separate or consecrate himself. Now, This doesn't come up again uh, a whole lot in Scripture either, although there's a very famous example. Who can think of the famous Nazarite? Samson. There you go. The famous Nazarite. We'll see that in Judges. I think chapter 13 is where uh, Samson is. Uh, Now, Samson's an interesting case because it says that he was to be a Nazarite from birth. He didn't even make this choice. God made the choice for his family that he would be a Nazarite, that he was being set aside by God as holy to God, to serve God with his whole life. He's going to actually be one of the ones who will help save uh, his people. Uh, I, I find the story of Samson interesting because Samson loses all of his strength when his hair gets cut. But isn't he made unclean when he kills all those people? I'm not sure how all that works out. There's some things I still have to figure out in the Samson story. But... Uh, That being said, that would be an example of somebody who has been set aside for God's purpose. Now, the Nazarite sets himself aside by doing a couple of things. First of all, he's going to pick a time frame, it seems, at least in this case, because it says there's going to be an end to this, right? Uh, Then from that time on, no wine, and so careful to be away from wine, even to the point where you don't even eat grapes during your time of separation. So, no wine 
uh, no strong drink, no vinegar, nothing that could even be close to uh, bringing you to a place uh, of being inebriated or drunken or anything like that. And again, all the days of his separation, so that whole entire time. The other thing he does is he doesn't cut his hair that whole entire time. Um, so I'm pretty sure everybody in the 70s was probably a Nazarite. Um, but anyway, he's setting himself aside again, separate himself to the Lord in verse 5, right? And then all the days of that, he can't go near a dead person. So these are kind of the three main things there. If he does accidentally end around, uh, being around a dead person, he has to start over. So he has to shave his head, bring an offering here. It talks about the, the doves being brought as an offering. Uh, there's this uh, a moment where a sin offering is brought as a burnt offering and makes atonement for him, uh, recognizing even though it wasn't his fault that he just happened to be around a dead person, it's still considered sin because you've trespassed against your promise. So even if it wasn't intentional, it's still a sin. It was still a trespass. You still missed the mark that you were aiming for. So there's a reset, and so there's this opportunity for him uh, to bring uh, a a redemption and restoration and to restart the whole process. But anyway, he could shave his head again and start over, and you go back through this process, and then it describes what you do when you come out of it. And this is kind of interesting, too. You start to bring all of these sacrifices. And one of the things we forget about a lot of the Old Testament sacrifices, they're just kind of stacked on top of each other all at the same time. It's a sacrifice on top of a sacrifice. Uh, But listen to these sacrifices here. We'll look in verse uh, 13 on down is where it starts to talk about those sacrifices. Uh, But he's going to bring his offering to the Lord. So the first one is, it's a male lamb, but it's brought as a burnt offering. And then you have the ewe lamb, a year old, brought as a sin offering. And then there is a peace offering, and then a grain offering, and a drink offering, And so you have all of these offerings together, but in the midst of that, there's also a ram of sacrifice as a peace offering, uh, and you take your hair that you shaved off and you put it in the middle of those sacrifices. So it's all being burnt up as an offering to God. Oftentimes it's called a soothing aroma before God. Uh, And I, I almost imagine that as just God up in heaven, like at a barbecue, you know, just like, he's just soaking it all in, right? This is what I do when I walk into a barbecue. A place that sells barbecue. I should. <laughs> when I walk into a place that sells barbecue, I just take it all in, you know. But for God, it describes it as a soothing aroma to him. It just describes like, it's like it brings a moment of peace to God. It's just kind of cool how all of these different offerings bring together this moment of peace. There's also the wave offerings where different pieces of it are waved before God. Um, But all of that is what's called the law of the Nazarite. And once again, it's an opportunity to separate oneself out for God. Now, we're looking at the nation of Israel separated out for God as a people. And they kept themselves separated from God by removing all defilement of disease and of sin, of removing even the defilement of jealousy and adultery, and then even having individuals who are setting themselves apart for God. This is what God is using as pictures of what it's like to be his people. That we are separated, set apart from God. That we would be set apart from the defilement and sin of this world, even though we're in this world. And it's only through the sacrifices, in our case, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, 
that we're truly set apart for God. That all of our sin must be paid for. This is the work that Jesus did in atonement on the cross. And then he ends this section with what's, I think, probably the world's most famous benediction uh, or closing blessing or prayer. And all of this just leading up to the nation of Israel beginning to make their march. We'll see next week where they're going to put things together to build the tent of meeting, all that kind of stuff. But they're going to be making this march now to the promised land. And you get what's here is called Aaron's benediction. Um, But here it is. The Lord actually is the one who gives this benediction to be spoken. Aaron's just the one who speaks it. Uh, not Aaron Kor, any, uh, any Aaron could probably speak this, but uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. And this is just, again, it's called Aaron's benediction here, but really this is God's blessing on his people that he gave to Aaron, and he told him specifically what to say. Uh, he, I, and um, Some of you, depending on your church history, maybe know this in, in a different way. You've heard it over and over maybe. Uh, as the blessing at the end of a service. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started the Calvary Chapels, used to do this at the end of all of his services, only he sang it, which I won't do for you because I don't know the tune as well as him. But uh, anyway, he, he would sing it over his church as a blessing to them. And so I'll read it to you guys as a blessing from God to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And then, of course, God said at the end of that, I then will bless them. I do think that part of that blessing comes from being set apart from the defilement of sin. Certainly there's the supernatural side where God will bring his blessing. But you see in the Old Testament covenant that his blessing was connected to the obedience of his people. That's what he was attempting to do. And that's what we're seeing here. From the beginning, removing the sin helps you or removing the disease helps you live longer. It's God's blessing on you. When you remove uh, the sin and the jealousy and the adultery, it's God's blessing in your life. It brings blessing amongst the people. And then when you set yourself apart for God, as you're doing these things, he's blessing you in connection with those things. I think it all plays together. But anyway, let me close it out in prayer. Heavenly Father, thankful for a chance to step into the Old Testament. It's been a little over a year for me, probably, I guess, since I've done this, but just thankful for it. Just thankful to be reminded of some of these core things that happened historically. Uh, that were designed to teach us uh, a picture of how much you love us and a picture of how we are to live in your kingdom, Uh, that they would also be examples of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, that there would be good examples to follow, uh, bad examples to avoid. Lord, I pray, like Samson, that we would be a people who would be in your hall of faith, 
that we would be a people who would just in faith trust that your son Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for our sins so that we can be in right relationship with you and be in right relationship with one another. Father, I do pray that you would bless the people of this church as you have in the past and I pray we'll continue to do in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.